This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss mercy killings or suicide homicides with Ms. Ann Newman, author of the February Harper's Magazine essay titled, Going to Extremes, Are Homicides Among the Elderly Acts of Mercy or Malice? Ann, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, David. Ms. Newman is the author of the 2016 volume, A Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. Her bio, of course, is posted on the podcast website. On background, in 2017, more than 47,000 Americans committed suicide, an increase of 33% since 2000. Comparatively, between 86 and 99, suicide rates consistently declined year over year. The elderly have not been immune from this trend. For example, just last Tuesday, Kaiser Health News, in conjunction with PBS, published a special report titled Lethal Plans, when seniors turn to suicide in long-term care. Though the report found it difficult to determine the exact number of suicides committed in nursing homes and assisted living centers, it appears, despite these residents being under care supervision, suicides in these facilities occur daily. Suicides or suicide homicides, where the spouse or partner kills their loved one and frequently and immediately themselves, is sadly unsurprising when you realize the U.S. has no universal long-term care policy. Medicare does not provide long-term care coverage. The Medicare hospice benefit is time-limited. The Medicare hospice provider has an annual per-beneficiary reimbursement cap. One has to meet a poverty threshold for long-term care under Medicaid, and a commercial long-term care insurance policy, if available, is expensive. It's worth noting as well, a quarter of Medicare beneficiaries have annual incomes below $15,000, and a quarter have savings under $14,500, and over half of these have no savings or are in debt. Only eight states, including this past week, New Jersey, and D.C. allow for medical aid in dying or what had been termed physician-assisted suicide. So with that as background or introduction, Anne, let me begin by asking you, relative again to your February Harper's Magazine essay, you begin and end that discussion uh, accounting, uh, providing an account of Philip Benight and Becky Golden's experience. Can you summarize that? I thought it was very effective. Oh, thank you, first of all, for reading. And this story struck me because... I had been following it for a number of years. Um, I had um, a Google alert set up uh, uh, to watch a number of terms for um, aid in dying, so assisted suicide or mercy killing. And um, mercy killing started delivering to my inbox these couples who had ended their lives. But I had a very hard time getting any one of the survivors or even the adult children to go on the record and talk to me. So I had a a number of potential sources drop out over the course of four years. And so I finished the book and, and, and some other projects. And then one day when I was down home in Lancaster with my sister, um, she handed me the 
newspaper, and on the front page was uh, Philip Benite's face and a story about um, his charge of um, assisting his wife's death. And it was a crazy experience to have been, you know, spending so many years looking at the landscape that you just laid out so wonderfully and so sadly. Um, and then um, to, to want to tell this story for so long and to find um, Philip and um, Becky there in my backyard, basically. Um, and so I couldn't get in touch with Philip. I tried through his lawyer and through neighbors, and um, I ultimately just cold knocked on his door and I didn't know what I would find right we we're told wow. that people who help end their and their spouses lives you know there many cases it's being done with guns and other things and I knew that there were no guns involved in this but you know what other definition do we have of domestic violence and so there was Philip um, sitting on a on a, a walker one of those seated walkers when I opened the door and I just handed him a little plant and said, I am so sorry for your loss. And he kind of crumpled in front of me and wept. And I put my arms around him. And that established this relationship where he gave me full access to everything from their financial statements to even his psychiatrist. And his um, it, the reason he was compelled to be so open was because he felt that every possible social system that he encountered in the course of Becky's 15-year illness um, had not helped them um, to the extent that they needed. Um, he had felt betrayed and alienated, and indeed her illness isolated them to such an extent that he wanted to get this story out, and he wanted it to... Um, reflect the nuance that his um, charge um, by the courts had not collected. Um, and so I spent a lot of time with Philip and learned that they had gone through this long period of Becky's decline, and Becky had pushed Philip to help her end her life in numerous times, in numerous cases, um, some documented, some not. Um, and ultimately, um, uh, Becky had um, a devastating stroke, and she was hospitalized for two months. And when finally Philip brought his wife home, um, he was um, hoping to go back to work, um, but he was her sole caretaker, and he couldn't get approval to keep her, to, to have uh, an aide sent to the house. Um, and he knew that he couldn't leave her alone. And finally, when insurance um, refused, to provide that care for them in the home, and Philip was facing termination from his job, mm -hmm. um, the Office of Aging showed up and said, we're taking you. Um, and they had this desperate moment where they checked themselves into the local hospital, hoping they could check out and avoid the Office of Aging. But indeed, the Office of Aging showed up at the hospital and took Becky against both of their wishes. That was kind of the culminating experience, that removal of Becky from her home, and we both know what that kind of unfamiliar situation, mm -hmm. unfamiliar surroundings can do to ill patients. Um, it's very destabilizing, um, and especially when it's against one's will. Um, and Philip was devastated. His sense of helplessness um, and uh, frustration were um, uh, enough to make the both of them say, 
okay, now's the time. And so the account that I open the article in Harper's with, um, and let me give a quick shout out to my editor, Katya Bachko, who saw this story from the beginning and helped shape it, um, and who was an amazing editor. Um, the story that we that we tell at the very beginning is um, is Philip waking up and realizing that they hadn't succeeded and knowing that he was going to face um, uh, repercussions, legal repercussions, um, that were in part what he had hoped to avoid by ending his life with his wife. Right. So he um, he takes her from the care facility. They they literally have this last meal. He uh, mixes pills, as you write, in some pudding. Uh, she consumes the pudding. He does the same thing, uh, but he survives. She doesn't, and then he is prosecuted. Um, so. And here's a lesson to all of us, right? Mm -hmm. 34 states in the country, roughly 34. I'd have to double-check that if it's changed over the past few months. But 34 states now have laws that um, uh, prevent um, assisting one's suicide. And it's under that statute that um, Philip was charged. Um, and, of course, when he was charged, it was immediately after he woke up from a coma. Right. Didn't know whether his um, wife was alive or not. She still was. Um, and he was put in handcuffs and taken to the to the jail. Um, he was released shortly after on bail. Um, but uh, but when she died, then um, and the charge became more serious. Mm -hmm. So this is Pennsylvania. And you do go through a... a very heart-rendering discussion of her decline over many years, many serious illnesses uh, that led them uh, uh, to this uh, mutual decision. Let me let me ask. Um, I do want to ask you about uh, the related question about why she is basically held in a facility, healthcare facility, against their will. But relative to the criminality of this, um, uh, you write that sentencing and mercy killing cases varies widely across the country. You just mentioned that two-thirds of states have this this law, the remaining third does not. So uh, Philip Benight is prosecuted. He, he His sentence, as I recall, was six months of, of uh, he had to wear an ankle brace and remain at home, in his home for six months. But another case you mentioned, William Dresser, I believe it is in Nevada, he shoots his wife, uh, Frances, and he is not prosecuted. What's your general assessment regarding uh, prosecution or not uh, in these mercy killings? Or when do prosecutors, based on your research, decide to prosecute and when it seems fairly arbitrary and when others do not? It is fairly arbitrary, and I think in part it's because um, we have little awareness across state borders of how this is taking place across, you know, municipalities. Um, this is not an issue that anyone's discussing. It seems as though we um, uh, label these deaths as elder Romeos and Juliets in the local news, if they're labeled at all. Even the term mercy killing um, makes us think of some sort of benign plight. And um, unfortunately, this is a, a desperation that seniors are experiencing. And um, and 
they're so desperate. Imagine your wife of 50 years taking a gun and holding it to her head and firing. I mean, that kind of desperation is what these couples are experiencing, and we just have no way of addressing it. And I think that's why judges don't know how to go about sentencing um, any um, spouses who survive. They have no guidance, um, and they're left with either a family narrative. They're not doing serious investigations when they're doing this sentencing. Um, and there are several factors that I found that help determine what judge's decision will be. Um, Philip had Becky's family testify on his behalf. That's right, yes. They had, and they had proof that um, Becky had wanted to end her life. Um, as well, Philip attempted to end his own life at the same time, so that was seen as um, a, an aid to his cause. But in the Dresser case, um, it was a different scenario, um, and he was not prosecuted. As the DA told me at the time, this was a few years ago, um, Dresser was so old and ill that the prison um, the state did not want to take responsibility for his um, health care. As well, um, he felt that uh, he was doing what his wife wanted. Mm -hmm. So we're finding DAs bringing these charges and then judges without much you know, guidance or experience in these cases making the decisions. And that's why they vary. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Uh, part of uh, Benight and Golden's experience uh, or the story is that Becky, as you uh, write and stated, um, was held in a nursing home. Uh, used the word this was destabilizing to both uh, her, and her and her husband, and this precipitated or contributed to uh, their going through with this. Um, so I, I found that somewhat odd. Um, so my my question is, or I was actually startled to read this. What's your understanding of why they were held? against their will, that is, that is typically not, that is not um, in an inpatient facility uh, standard operating procedure. Right. Um, their situation I don't think was uncommon in that they were up against that double bind of not having enough funds to pay for their own long-term care at home. Mm -hmm and insurance wouldn't cover it. And the Office of Aging said she can't stay at home alone. She's got to be in a facility. Um, her, her care requires 24-hour um, attention. And that's where they were. Um, and, um, and that's why the Office of Aging came for Becky. Philip could have quit his job, but they wouldn't have had health insurance then. Um, they could have refinanced their house or some other drastic measures, but that would have made them more financially insecure. And um, they really didn't see why insurance wouldn't cover Becky's care at home when they had done so multiple times in the past. So it was a kind of frenzy and desperation, like, we're just asking insurance to do this. Why are they being so obstinate? Why can't we keep Becky in her home? Mm -hmm. And insurance was saying, we have determined that um, that we can't provide that at this time. And so when Office of Aging came for Becky, that was really um, a, a horrible moment for them. And I think also within the facility, she was very vocal about not wanting to be there. She said repeatedly that she wanted to leave um, and that she wanted to end her life. And so they put her in um, a locked area of the facility so that she would not leave. And 
so that she could not, you know, just take off at any Mm -hmm. given time. And that was, um, they had done so without informing Philip, and um, it was again against both their wishes, and they were really tremendously unhappy and, um, and I think, insulted by that action. So she's in a locked ward, as the facility and the state is saying, for her safety. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Let's let's get, let's get to the uh, healthcare industry's uh, role in all this. You write, as Americans age, the healthcare industry fails or has failed to address their needs. These examples are a clearly indication of such. So you've been studying end of life care now for several years. So my question is, how can or how can mercy killings be prevented? Uh, or what else or what more should we require demand from healthcare providers uh, to at least reduce the number of these or to prevent them altogether? Yeah, I think um, healthcare providers aren't the only ones that can um, uh, uh, heighten their awareness of elders in these situations. I think this is a breakdown of various social systems. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, we know that insurance doesn't cover long-term care, and right. that's horrible oversight. Um, it's devastating to families um, all over the country in great numbers, um, and it's bankrupting families. It's um, it's putting people into uh, um, deep isolation, which is um, unhealthy and unsafe. Um, I think our other social safety nets, like um, police or just you know community and neighbors, are failing to check in on elder couples or to follow the signs. You know, wellness checks and various other calls to the police should be a sign that something's going on in a household. Mm-hmm. Um, neighbors who um, have elder couples that they don't see for several days, um, that they don't check in on and ask about groceries, those sorts of things are also a factor, kind of the isolation and neglect of these couples as they reside within community. I think healthcare providers too, but healthcare providers really only see those elders who have access to healthcare. Um, unless they're in a hospital situation, a lot of these elders don't have a primary care doctor. Um, they may have some specialists here and there, but we all know that um, that various doctors means no one person is looking out for um, the whole the whole care of of a couple or or an individual. So I think there are many things that mm-hmm. are taking place here where elders are falling through the cracks. Right, and and this does point to the, the, the need and utility and the reliance on family caregivers or informal caregivers, family members, typically, of course, women, who in many of these instances are already overtaxed, uh, but there is that element uh, as well involved here. Let me, um, I'm curious to ask, so uh, my focus uh, on, for this podcast is, is policy, policy making where we're failing, moreover. Uh, so the follow-up, in, in your pursuit of this subject, did you happen to talk with, other than uh, officials, say, in, in criminal justice, did you happen to talk to any, uh, say, state or local uh, health care officials? Um, and if so, how did those conversations go? I think I, I didn't for this piece specifically, but over the course of research um, over the past several years mm-hmm. that I've been following elder care, um, again and again, I'm told that um, that it's 
patient responsibility um, and that maybe these elders, you know, want privacy or something of that, of that sort. I think there isn't a real sense of how to address elder care other than maybe getting elders into community well in advance of their um, end weeks and days when they're still when they're still able to be part of community. Um, I think we all understand that long-term care is a huge problem, but no one really has a clear solution. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't we haven't faced the fact that um, that healthcare only now goes to those who can pay for it. We have privileged healthcare to such an extent um, that we fail to see the inhumanity in not providing care mm-hmm. to people who are suffering, um, particularly elders. Um, and I think that requires that understanding of our social responsibility requires a shift in how we view healthcare access. Um, and I really think in, when we look at the cost of healthcare for elders and the rising number of elder population in this country and across the world, um, we have no choice financially as a country but to address this issue as soon as possible. Can't agree more. Yes, thank you. So the title of your your essay uh, is the question: Are homicides among the elderly acts of mercy or malice? And then at some point, uh, the phrase appears: Are these rational suicides? If that's not an oxymoron, so is there such a thing <laughs> as a rational suicide? Or on balance, what's your having researched this? Uh, what's your sense relative to are these, uh, do these constitute mercy or malice? And recognizing that there are eight states that now legally allow uh, medical aid in dying. Yeah, that's a great question. When researching the good death, I had a chance to talk to the bioethicist Art Kaplan. And you know, Art's wonderful. He's kind of like this high school football coach. Um, and he just, I remember asking him this question, is, is suicide ever justified? And he said, we have a whole history of martyrdom, right? Like in our culture, in every culture in the world, we justify suicide in particular instances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so saying that suicide is never justified is an attempt to prevent early um, uh, uh, suicides, and we should do everything we can to prevent those who have, say, addiction or mental health issues or severe depression. Um, but the elder situation is something very different. We um, can map as scholars what has happened to health care and end-of-life care over the past 50 years. We can look at futile care mm-hmm. and the one treatment after another kind of torture that we're at the point of putting our elders through. Um, There are a number of ways to diagnose the dire situation that elders are put in and to see that we've set up a scenario where elders ending their lives at a particular time of their choice when they're terminal as, um, as, uh, Everyone, except for Montana, every one of the aid and dying um, laws requires six months uh, <laughs> left to live. And you and I both know that that's a rough diagnosis. Yes, right. um, uh, 
two requests for the quote unquote service, et cetera. There are regulations that are um, in place in all of these states except for Montana. Um, so there is clearly a difference between no longer wanting to suffer in pain as you die, hastening death, the, the um, aid and dying advocates say, um, and not requiring elders, not requiring human beings to go through horrifying suffering, existential or physical. Right, right. And, and say, farmers right now who are ending their lives in, in horrible numbers, high numbers, suicide, because of financial issues or because of the bleakness of the future of their profession or um, a host of other things. So there is a difference. There's a clear difference. And um, I think the aid and dying movement has worked very hard over the past several decades to clarify that. Um, but it doesn't mean that we've figured out an alternative, right? Like a patient taking a, a, a lethal medication in the comfort of their own home is very different from the experience that Philip and Becky had. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think legal aid in dying in Pennsylvania would have helped them. I think they looked early on um, at the, uh, their access in Pennsylvania and realized there was nothing they could do. And while this was on their mind for a long time, Becky did not want to um, suffer anymore. She had gone through years of hell. Um, but their decision, um, however long they contemplated it, it was triggered by that separation that was forced on them. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that the requirements of aid in dying would have... Um, suited their situation could have helped them interesting so so there are a lot there are a lot of factors in here and then i asked i asked philip about this um and we're still very much in touch and um i think all the requirements like becky wasn't terminal um she had had series of strokes and she had lost many of her faculties um abilities that were um intimately important to her but she was not terminal, for instance. Mm -hmm. And there are elder couples out there that do not wish to go on, but do not qualify for aid in dying, even if it's legal in their state. Right, the gap. This, uh, I, I was going to ask, since you're an experienced hospice uh, worker, that years ago this issue was addressed, the phrase was palliative sedation, whereby physicians using um, increasing, effectively increasing amounts of morphine uh, derived the same result. This wasn't as publicly discussed, discussed at all, uh, but that's how we used to address this issue largely. It was, uh, if, again, precondition is the patient has a primary care physician who's known, uh, who knows the patient, uh, and this is typically how this used to be addressed, um, and we've moved away from that in part, as you suggest, because increasing numbers don't have a, a long-time uh, uh, provider. Uh, you know, as they say, right. healthcare has gone retail. Right, yeah, so sorry right. we're, we're, we're at our time uh, boundary, and I do appreciate this overview of your work. I, I am interested, just quickly to follow up, 
Where, where are you going next with your research? Oh, um, I'm writing another book at the moment, but it's more on the grief side, grief and travel. Um, but I don't think I'll ever leave behind elder care. Um, um, I have a huge interest in um, uh, viral, viral diseases and epidemiology. And at the moment, I'm completely fascinated with rabies. So, so we'll see. But, um, but this area and um, as health and religion particularly intersect, I, um, I think that will always be my wheelhouse. Thank you for asking. Okay. Thank you for your time, and I'm again genuinely appreciative. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.